This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Many Colorado homeowners were surprised when they opened their mail recently. Notices from the local assessor's office said their home values had gone up 15, 25, even 35 percent. So what does this mean for your property taxes? Corbin Sackdahl leads the Colorado Assessors Association. He used to be an assessor in Arapahoe County outside Denver. And welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Where did values go up most? In the Denver metropolitan area. So remember, this is a statewide, when we're talking assessors, that's statewide. So we have 64 county assessors in Colorado, but the the largest increase is in Denver metropolitan area. Okay. Can you say anything more specific within that? Any trends you're noticing within the metro? I think it was my house. I think my house. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure lots of people in the metro yeah. area feel somewhat picked on. Yeah. But, but this, mm-hmm. this global sense of the state really does give us a picture of where property values are headed globally in Colorado and where the hotspots are, doesn't it? It does. And obviously, um, Douglas County is very hot. Uh, Denver is very hot. And, and I think I talked to your producer or, or somebody, and, you know, they had light rail come in in their neighborhood, which created the values to go up substantially. So it depends on what's happening in the neighborhood. Obviously, the real estate market is on fire, and it has been for quite a few years. And there are lots of forces behind that. You can see maps of property values in Denver, Boulder, and El Paso counties at cprnews.org. Why do you think that they have gone up so much? What are the forces at play here? Well, it's supply and demand. And so obviously there is more demand than there is supply. Now, one one thing everybody needs to remember is, and actually I got a text at 6 a.m. from my son when he got his notice in El Paso saying, how in the world can my value go up that much in one year? This is not one year. Assessors revalue every other year. So this is a two-year increase. So when you talk about 15%, 20%, 25% increases, divide that by two to determine the annual increase. Um, And and even the snapshot we're getting is not uh, in real time, uh, that it essentially specifies values of last summer. That's right. They so appraise- some properties could have gone up more, right? Yeah. My guess is, you know, it, the real estate market is still going up. So the assessor's appraisal date. Now, assessors, their offices, we are appraisers. We're no different than a mortgage appraiser. You hire somebody when you purchase a house. We are licensed appraisers. Our job is to go out and value all the properties in the county as of June 30th of 2016. So we are not current. We're a year behind. Okay. Again, only a snapshot in time. Things may have uh, grown even more since. And it's interesting that the the boom, if you will, in Metro Denver also extends up north to Weld County, if you look Ab- at the Absolutely. At the absolutely. Um, I-25 corridor from Fort Collins all the way down to probably Pueblo. Uh, that corridor is um, very desirable. So let's talk more about what an assessment is based on. Um, no one came to my condo and said, I want inside to see the quality of your walls, you know, and floors. What do assessors base value on if they're not looking inside as an inspector would? They're basing it purely on sales. So uh, Denver County, Arapahoe County, they have over 200,000 properties to appraise. And so they are using sales, and that is a state law, that we have to use sales to value property, again, as June 30th of 2016. Now, of course, the assessor doesn't have the staff to go 
and inspect 200,000 properties just before they value the property. And, of course, the homeowners are not saying, hey, assessor, come on in. I want to show you my house. That is set up for the month of May. So if when you received your notice of valuation around May 1st, that is when you look at that. If you disagree with it or just want to have conversation, assessors are – their doors are open, welcome to come in, set an appointment, just walk in the door, email. Everybody is fully staffed looking for to help people understand what that notice evaluation is. And property owners have the rest of the month to protest their assessed value if they don't think it's accurate. Does that happen much? One, that people protest, and two, that it's modified as a result? We Obviously, there will be protests. Uh-huh. Um, less than Typically, less than 10% of the property owners. Um, and, and so if you have a crack in your foundation wall or you've never updated your house, you might bring that to the assessor's attention. Huh. Okay. And how often would you say you modify based on protests? Yeah, and, and so that that opens up the door for an appraiser to sit down, talk to you. You may bring photos in. The appraiser may ask for a physical inspection. They'll go out and realize that you still have shag carpeting and, <laughs> and you know, appliances have never been replaced. A bathtub is still that gold or um, – and this gives the opportunity then for them to make an adjustment. And does that happen much? Just quickly. Absolutely. It does. Uh, okay. It, it, it does happen a lot when there is something wrong with the property that the assessor does not know about. Interesting that in Denver, low-income areas are among those that saw their values go up the most yeah. Why is that? I think it's the most affordable. And so when you look at the population and look, you know, can you afford a $5 million house in Cherry Hills Village? Well, there's there's not as many people that can afford that. So when you get back to that de- demand, the lower income and housing, you and I were having this conversation a few minutes ago, the housing is almost becoming where it's not affordable. So your school teachers out there, et cetera, that uh, – might not be able to afford except for those areas. So there is a lot of demand for that market. Now, I want to talk about what this means for taxes. It's not like the property tax on your house goes up 25% because your valuation went up 25%. The formula is more complicated than that. But for people that saw big increases in value, uh, will they go up enough to notice each month? And taxes are the difficult part even for assessors now. Again, assessors don't set your taxes. We are appraisers. Who sets your taxes? Um, Mill levies. The mill levy is determined by your school district, your fire district, your city, your county, your metropolitan districts. If you look at your property tax bill, you'll see all the districts that you pay into. They determine that mill levy, so that determines the taxes by the end of the year. Um, Starting in August, I recommend people attend budget meetings from your schools, your fire, et cetera, and have input. Uh, You know, so uh, what you do, would you like me to go through the formula on how you calculate? No, let's not do that, but it it does vary. And I just want to say that because of a complicated formula that Colorado uses to set property taxes, they actually might go down for people who saw their assessed value go up a little. Uh, Is that correct? There's always that possibility. Um, I I don't expect my taxes to go down, but I don't expect them to skyrocket up either. Mm-hmm. 
uh, because of this constitutional provision that might make this true in some communities, there is concern uh, about the potential for tax revenues actually to go down, even in the face of some increases. So we reached out to several counties in rural areas, particularly in southern Colorado, which saw values go up just a few thousand dollars on average, increases nothing like the northern front range. And in those places, services for the community could be in trouble, again, because of this complicated formula. Property taxes could actually go down. Here's the assessor in Custer County, that's near Pueblo, J.D. Henrick. The worst-case scenario could see people, taxing entities, losing 10% of their value. Fire, hospital districts, uh, water and sewer district. If your fire district has 10% less funds than they're used to getting, you know, probably a little bit less able to buy equipment, maybe a little bit less training, that kind of thing. I am actually a member. Uh, I'm on the board of directors of the library board here as well. We would be looking at with a 10% decrease, you know, it's like it comes down to, okay, do we have to decrease hours? Do we buy less materials? Do we have less computers available? And we hate to do those kind of things because there's so many people that the library is the only place they have computer access. Meanwhile, the concerns are longer term. In Hinsdale County, that's in southwestern Colorado, the assessor there is Luke De La Pata. I believe it's going to have a huge trickle down um, and maybe not so much the first year, but as it goes through, um, you know, we don't have a lot of ways to recoup money. So any any tax dollars that we lose, I think, you know, as as it goes through the years, that is when it's going to affect us the most. As we go forward and there's no money there to refill our coffers, that's when it's really going to hit our county the hardest, I believe. So the picture can be very mixed depending on where you are in the state. Very quickly before we go, Corbin, commercial properties, have they followed this sort of residential trend? Yes, commercial properties are up as well. And if you don't mind me addressing just a little bit of Gallagher Amendment, Gallagher is... This is the amendment we're talking about very quickly. Okay, very quickly. The commercial property owners pay the brunt of the property taxes in the state, which holds the residential property taxes down. If you come from back east, New Jersey, Minnesota, et cetera, this is our, ours is a down payment compared to theirs. Corbin Sackdahl, executive director of the Colorado Assessors Association and a former property assessor in Arapahoe County. We talked about property valuations coming out this month. As we said, homeowners have until June 1st to protest. Now your feedback and some updates in Loud and Clear. We heard recently how the Nuremberg doctors' trials after World War II helped shape modern medical ethics. It's something the CU School of Medicine is focused on. After our conversation aired, we learned of another Colorado connection to the trials, that the late Vivian Spitz of Littleton was a court reporter for them. She wrote about it in her book, Doctors from Hell, the Horrific Account of Nazi Experiments on Humans. Here she is talking about the experience on C-SPAN's book TV, in 2005. There was not one scintilla of any kind of remorse shown on the part of any one of these doctors or assistants, including the seven who were acquitted. Vivian Spitz. 
Our story about a laundry truck for people who are homeless got some of you talking. The mobile laundromat is run by a Denver nonprofit. Hannah Coral had a question. At cprnews.org, she writes, I love this idea and how it benefits the lives of people experiencing homelessness. I'm curious, though, about what the benefits of the laundry truck are over using this money to add or expand laundry facilities in homeless shelters. Well, here's Scott Kerr of Bayod Enterprises, the nonprofit. Certainly, we need to increase laundry capacity at shelters. And if you're going to just do one laundromat in the shelter, that would probably be cheaper than developing a mobile laundry service. But if, if you wanted to do that two or three times, certainly the mobile laundry service is, is a more efficient way to do that. Kerr says Bayad is working with a couple of Denver shelters to offer their laundry services there. It has been 50 years since Colorado passed a first-of-its-kind law to liberalize abortion restrictions. We interviewed former Democratic Governor Dick Lamb, who sponsored the legislation when he was just a freshman state lawmaker. During the interview, Governor Lamb referred to a fetus as a month-old zygote. Kristen Ekren of Estes Park took issue with that language. She emailed, Please try to be more balanced on this issue. How about ask Richard and other activists when a month-old zygote becomes a baby, exactly? About that same conversation, listener John Caldera, who's also president of the free market think tank The Independence Institute, tweeted, Fascinating interview by Nathan Heffel with former Governor Lamb on his 1967 bill to expand abortion rights in Colorado. Colorado Matters at its very best. Feedback and an update now to some agriculture stories we've aired. We visited the state's cantaloupe capital, Rocky Ford, in southeastern Colorado. Farmers there had just begun planting, and we wondered if the recent snowfall in the area, anywhere from 12 to 22 inches, hurt them. Farmer Matthew Proctor said one field in the area did suffer some damage, but his crop is fine so far. The majority of them were still underneath the ground. And we're just working their way. When it gets cold and wet, the plants kind of slow down a little bit. Uh, Nothing seems to like cold and and wet weather. That's the good news. The bad news? Severe thunderstorms are predicted for Rocky Ford later today. We also reported on a new $20 million meat processing facility being built at Colorado State University. It's part of the school's meat science program. And some of the funding will come from the Greeley-based meatpacking giant JBS USA. Critics are circulating a petition to block the project. As we reported, they have a range of concerns about what they call a slaughterhouse. Amber Russell of Lyons picked up the phone to add her voice. From my perspective, I am a mom with a student, um, a son who's going to be attending college relatively soon. And this decision by CSU, you know, really made us scratch that school off the list and to be investing this much money from private entities and the beef industry, it seems completely backwards and not science that I would want to support. Russell thought the story leaned towards CSU and added on Facebook, I know CSU underwrites CPR. Do you think that impacted your report? Thanks for the question, Amber. The answer, there is a sacrosanct firewall between news and underwriting that both sides observe. It means no coordination, and we make our editorial decisions with no regard to who sponsors CPR. If you have questions about what we do or comments, email us through the website, where you can also comment beneath individual articles, so cprnews.org. We are CPR News on Facebook. And on Twitter, a few options. The show is at Colorado Matters, and I'm at CPR Warner.
We'll be right back on Colorado Public Radio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Ever heard of Colorado's Kawanichi Valley? It's not very well known, but it's incredibly important because it's where the Colorado River begins, essentially. Boulder historian Thomas Andrews dives into the history of this place, tucked into the backcountry of Rocky Mountain National Park. His book, Coyote Valley, A Deep History in the High Rockies, is a finalist for a Colorado Book Award. And uh, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You look at the intersection of people and environments in this valley, which is also called the Coyote Valley. Uh, first off, will you just describe the place for us? Yeah. So if you head about 100 miles northwest of Denver, um, north of Grand Lake, you reach the headwaters of the Colorado River. And it's a classic glacial valley, U-shaped, um, ringed by the Never Summer Mountains on the west and the Front Range on the east. And, um, you know, you have the Colorado River meandering across the valley floor and these sort of stunning alpine heights rising above and then these, uh, you know, sort of timber clad um, sides of the of the valley. When you go there, do you see many other people? Um, you know, n- not nearly as many as you do in the front side of Rocky Mountain National Park. It's, yeah. it's certainly one of the one of the less visited parts of Rocky Mountain. And flanked by my favorite named mountains, the Never Summer, as you say. Yeah, yeah. And the Never Summer range comes from the same expedition, actually, that gave the Kawanichi Valley its name. So in, in 1914, the Colorado Mountain Club brought a bunch of, um, well, brought three northern Arapahos down from the Wind River Reservation. And um, what, the, you know, what the Mountain Club wanted to do was to sort of um, come up with more interesting names for, uh, for the landscape around Rocky Mountain National Park, which was then in the process of being planned. And so they took these Arapaho elders around and asked them what they called various things. And so that's where the Never Summers, they, before that they'd often been referred to as the Rabbit Ear Range. They get renamed the Never Summers. And then the Kawanichi Valley had previously been called mostly the North Fork. And it was renamed Kawanichi, which means Coyote Creek Valley. So you are so well-versed in the the human history of this place, but also in the ecological history of this place, the geologic history of this place. Um, Can you just talk to me a little bit about that confluence of history and science and how you weave that together? And I guess why? Yeah. Yeah. You think the confluence of that is so important? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm an environmental historian, which means that uh, what I'm really interested in is how people and non-human nature have shaped each other over time. Um, But when you look at a place like the Kawanichi Valley, it's a place that's very challenging to study um, in sort of traditional historical ways. There's, uh, you know, no famous people have ever lived there. There's very little uh, written documentation of the valley. There's no, like, great first settlers account or first explorers account. And so the story of this place over time really is a story of people and the natural world. And the only way to get at nature's side of that is by looking at, you know, ecology, forestry, hydrology, geology, and bringing in things from a bunch of different fields. And then the human side, you know, it goes so far back in that area. It's been, it's been humanized for, you know, probably 13,000 years. Right. The earliest inhabitants were known as the Nooch, uh, and they're ancestral to some of the Ute peoples, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So the Nooch, this is what this is what Ute peoples called themselves. Like like most uh, names that Native peoples call themselves, it means simply the people or the real people. And um, so they're the first they're the first sort of identifiable group in the area. We know that they were there starting at least fourteen hundred. And it's remarkable possibly... that they were able to survive in Coyote Valley, isn't it? I mean, oh yeah, it's a very it's a very harsh place for much of the year. You know, I mean, the the, the lowest part of the valley is at about eighty seven hundred feet. And so a very extreme environment. And um, for the Nooch 
mentioned for their for their forebears, this was a place that you could really only live in for part of the year. Mm. And it was a place that you you know sort of came into during the warm season, um, but you had to get out of there in the winter. The winter up there is just so so severe that there's really no um, you know I mean you can't you can't camp all winter there. There's nothing to eat. The valley floor is covered in snow most winters. What did they see in it in the in the in the better months weather wise? Well, in the in, in the better months, it was a fantastic. Um, I mean, it was it was flush with all sorts of resources. The the Colorado River, of course, had uh, cutthroat trout and a bunch of other fish species that they could that they could exploit. The cutthroat uh, trout has been on the decline in the area, though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, it's been sort of ongoing restoration efforts, which have which have had sort of a checkered. Um, Checkered history, um, and then higher up, actually, I mean, one of the one of the richest areas in the in the valley for the for the Nuch and for other indigenous peoples is actually the the subalpine alpine ecotone. Um, so that sort of Crumholtz zone up up right at the edge of treeline, and up there they were um, you know they could hunt um, say uh, you know bighorn sheep species like that. And archaeologists have found game drives within Rocky Mountain National Park. That's right. That are thousands of years old, and that Ute peoples probably continue to use, um, and and probably Arapaho peoples as well into historic times. That is a kind of dead end, so that the. Uh, the hunted, the prey are cornered, if you will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, think of them sort of like funnels, you know. So they yeah. would. So, so the idea here was to was to um, you know you'd have people chasing or directing the animals into locations where they would where they would be uh, you know con- where they would congregate and then where where people who are hidden could then jump up. And, and indeed, there are remnants of that. Yes, in Rocky Mountain National Park. So the the Nooch were forced out of Coyote Valley in the 1880s, and white settlers arrived. Uh, what was life like for miners in the valleys, now ghost towns of, I, I hadn't heard of these, so it was wonderful to learn them reading the book, Gaskill and Lulu City. Yeah. Yeah, yeah what did Lulu you discover City was named about that for, for one of the, for one of the uh, town builder's daughters, actually. So, okay. Hence the, hence the, the sort of picturesque name. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, the miners also had to contend, of course, with this very harsh environment. And, um, and you know, also, also all, of the, all of the work of trying to make uh, mining in the valley pay, um, and you know, so their lives in the valley depended first of all on you know, this really sort of extensive use of local food supplies, and so there's there's records of these lavish feasts that they would hold that included everything from you know bear steaks to mountain trout to um, fricasseed mudlark. Um, fricasseed mudlark. Yeah, yeah. Which I which I've, <laughs> I've never tried myself. I'm not even fully sure what a mudlark is, but um, but but uh, you know. Supposedly, they found it delicious, um, but the miners would also, you know, the, the miners were also heavily dependent on food from the outside world, and so it's really during the mining boom then that this that this remote area becomes incorporated more fully into the American economy, and it's the miners really who are the first ones who see the the sort of scenic grandeur of the valley, and they're the ones who start sort of you know circulating the idea that this is a special place, a special place that eventually would become a national park but not without a lot of negotiation. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and historian Thomas Andrews is with me. His book, Coyote Valley, Deep History in the High Rockies, has been nominated for a Colorado Book Award. And it is the story, in some ways, of all of humanity, but told through one valley that's in Rocky Mountain National Park, also known as the Kawanichi Valley and of course, being the the side of the headwaters of the Colorado River, uh, inevitably questions of of water and of how we have altered the hydrologic system arise in Coyote Valley. Yeah. So the so the 
So the Kawanishi Valley is the site of um, the oldest transmontane water diversion in Colorado. So the first place where you had where you had a sort of irrigation system that took water from the western slope over to the eastern slope. In a way, it was a symbol of what was to come. Yeah, very much so. So it was this project called the Grand Ditch, and the leading the sort of leading forces behind it were agricultural developers in the sort of Fort Collins Greeley area in the northern Piedmont of Colorado. And um, it, it drove them crazy that the Colorado River flowed down the western slope of Colorado, of course, where there weren't very many people at the time. And not the eastern slope. And not so, the eastern slope. So they made it happen. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and you know, one of the phrases that I found in my research was that they wanted the river to, quote unquote, do duty. And so they wanted the river to do work. And they found it so incredibly wasteful, the, the natural system whereby the river, you know, went off west into the Gulf of California. And so what they, what they started working on then was this, was this Grand Ditch project. And it intercepted a bunch of creeks coming down the Never Summers, took them over Lapooter Pass, and put the water in the Pooter River so it could be distributed to the, the growing farming regions of northern Colorado. An early trans-mountain diversion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, it's first built in the 1890s. It's not really uh, fully operational until the 1930s. So we talked about the mining history a bit, but the the boom there was short-lived. Yeah, it and was. So what is what is sort of the population of the Coyote Valley after that? Well, so um, it, it, it's unclear how many people actually came from the mining rush, probably on the order of 600, um, you know, maximum 1,000. In the wake of the mining boom, which really is over by about 1885, homesteaders start coming in. Mm-hmm. And there's probably about, um, I think, 42 people in all file homesteads <laughs> within the valley. And you talked to, just a bit earlier about the almost the seeds of, of this becoming a national park, this realization that it was a very special place. Uh, but that was not without controversy, and it didn't happen quickly, did it? No, it took about six years for Rocky Mountain National Park to happen. So the idea, um, you know, sort of the idea is first tossed around around Estes Park, and the idea is to make a national park that would be representative of Rocky Mountain scenery. Um, most of the leading characters in the story initially were in the Estes Park area, people like Enos Mills and, um, you know, Freeland Stanley and so forth. And what they wanted was a national park that would, that would protect characteristic Rocky Mountain scenery. They wanted it to be next to, next to Estes Park, but of course they didn't want the federal government coming in and taking their land. And so it was never going to be within Estes Park itself. And then everything else was kind of up for negotiation. With some of those homesteaders, I'm gathering. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Mills's initial plan was for a thousand mile, a, th- a thousand square mile national park that would run roughly from Mount Evans to the Wyoming border. And then this whole process of political negotiation ensued that progressively shrank the park. And the key issue here then was that the park couldn't conflict with uh, vested economic interests. And so the park boundaries end up basically sort of gerrymandered to avoid uh, logging, mining, and, um, and to some extent, homesteading as well. And so the homesteads along the valley floor, um, they're located right at the western edge of, of Rocky Mountain National Park's original boundary. How is climate change manifesting in the valley, if at all? Yeah, climate change is a, is a, is a, massive, um, is a massive issue in Rocky Mountain National Park and a really sort of um, you know, ominous set of concerns for the, for the future of the Kawanichi Valley. It's complicated, of course, so it sort of depends on where you're looking. And um, to some extent, it depends on what you care about. But some of the things that are going on, first of all, uh, most vegetation modelers predict that um, warmer, drier climate in the West will ensure that the tundra and possibly even the subalpine ecosystems will be essentially squeezed off the tops of the mountains of the Never Summers in the Front Range. Um, Climate change is also exacerbating uh, mountain pine beetle 
and other insect infestations, making them more common. I mean, you know, mountain pine beetle, as you know, is, has been in Colorado for literally millions of years. But, um, but climate change, um, you know, makes, it, makes these outbreaks more likely and more intense when they do occur. How often do you get to this valley, Thomas? Um, you know, it sort of, it, it depends. Um, lately, it's been a couple times a year. When I was writing the book, I got up there a lot more often. The Coyote Valley, also the title of your book, Deep History in the High Rockies. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Thomas Andrews, Associate Professor of History at CU Boulder, and his book is up for a Colorado Book Award. You can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Nederland folk band Elephant Revival is riding the momentum of their latest album, Pedals, which they say is a departure from their usual sound. Hello, you who move with me in a day. Hello, you who move me like the sea. Hello, you who show me what our fears are made of. Who love me, love, loves me just to be. This is Hello You Who. It highlights some of the new instruments the band experimented with, like cello and kick and snare drums. The band just released a music video for this song, and they're back at Red Rocks later this month. Last year, I spoke with singer and guitarist Daniel Rodriguez and singer Bonnie Payne, who also plays washboard and musical saw. You two founded the band a decade ago. This is your first album with producer Sam Kassirer, who's worked with popular acts like Josh Ritter and Lake Street Dive. Do you feel that you have to change your sound to reach a wider audience at all? Or is this new sound simply musical exploration, your sort of curiosity as musicians? It's a pretty natural musical exploration. Um with uh, we added a few different elements that also kind of led us in the direction that seems like we're going with the pedal steel and the cello and a little bit of um, more edgier percussion at times. Edgier percussion. What does edgier percussion sound like? Funny. Um, we've included a snare and a kick and some rusty chains on the album and uh, some rusty chains <laughs> as as a musical instrument. Tell me about that. So uh, the producer, Sam Kassir, actually stopped off at a uh, garage sale and and bought a whole bunch of different chains. And uh, on a particular song called Pedals, the actual the title track, he mic'd up um, Charlie dropping the chains on the ground in a rhythmic pattern. So you get that. And this is your bandmate, uh, Charlie Rose. He actually um, was at the garage sale trying out different chains, and you know you can only imagine <laughs> for like almost an hour or something. He said. Like different size chains. Yeah. yeah, the ones that he got were you know these really gnarly big link chains that were you know really rusty. Those those ones sounded mm-hmm. the best. And he had some some kind of smaller ones too, and like the dropping and lifting of them made two different sounds. What did you think of this idea when he brought it to you? 
I think it was actually our idea to begin with. I don't remember his I, idea. Was. I I liked it though because the the song has a very uh, Bonnie writes a lot of merry time ish. You know, you have this imagery of you being on this big old ship crossing the ocean, and and there's a lot of adventure and mystery in it, and somehow those chains kind of created that image. And I think I heard of Tom Waits doing it once and I was like, oh, that would be so good. I'm really glad you brought up the word maritime because I got a very maritime feel from a number of the tracks on this album. I'm going out over the sea bunch of landlubbers from, you know, Netherlands and lions doing writing about the ocean in the mountains. Dan grew up on the ocean, so there's that element. And then there's um, a story that I've been kind of writing, or it's been writing itself, with all these songs that are related to each other. And a lot of that has to do with the ocean. A lot of that takes place on the Irish Sea, particularly. This is like serial songwriting, Bonnie. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and it means that you have been writing songs that relate to each other from album to album. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you miss the ocean? You know, I do, though we tour a lot. And so we do hit the California coast and the East Coast quite a bit and, you know, different countries and their coasts. God, the coast of Wales is really amazing. Well, it's uh, absolutely true that place inspires you, but so do people. And I understand the band got together to brainstorm for this new album a little over a year ago. And this was after you all lost a good friend to breast cancer. Tell me about how that loss inspired a song that you wrote called Peace Tonight. The song um, is pretty much a direct inspiration of our friend, you know, Teresa, who we lost. Um, You know, I say lost, but she's definitely in the ethers there playing with the wind or something like that but it's really the emotions and that she has sparked within me and and just really the spirit of her personality is in that song and she thanks the sky and she walks the earth And she's a friend of the bands in general. She, was she ever a member of the band? She's a, a dear friend, and she actually uh, coached us, you know, on communication skills. And you know, because we're, you know, we're a band. We've been together for ten years. It's like a big family, and so that's how we approached her because that was her life skills. And then through that, you know, we became really great friends. She's like the band psychologist, Bonnie. Yeah, I mean, psychologist is a strong word. She actually, she's worked with a few bands. And, um, you know, I think one of the art forms of being in a band that you don't hear about is communication with each other and um, how to continue to develop that and not let it each other become a stagnant thing because we've been together, we've been friends for over 10 years and traveling in small spaces. So I think she really helped us grow and stretch in ways that people aren't always willing to accept help in. You know, we'll forever be grateful for her for that. And then she ended up just being a dear friend who would hop on the road with us. And it was very life-changing being with her and really recognizing how precious um, our time here is. All good lovers out there, peace tonight, peace tonight, to the broad. 
When a band learns to communicate or communicate better, what does that mean? Listening, I can think, is a huge part of it. <laughs> like using your communication to to make sure you're hearing each other correctly, which is good for the music also, you know, because that's the first step in creating music together is listening as big as you can. Which is funny because you think of musicians as already having a pretty darn good ear. There's always room for improvement. <laughs> you can you can listen to drums and, you know, understand that the bridge is coming, but you might not have too many life skills. <laughs> uh, from the ear to the voice a little bit, there are currently five members of Elephant Revival, and it gives your sound a real diversity. Uh, for instance, in the track we heard, Peace Tonight, it's really Dan's voice that's predominant. Uh, but in others, Bonnie, it's your voice that takes center stage. And in past recordings, I understand you've divided the vocal lifting among other bandmates as well. And it strikes me as so different from a band with one lead vocalist. You know, mm -hmm. Chris Martin is the sound of Coldplay or something like that. I like that we have a lot of different textures that we can utilize depending on what the song seems to call for. And that... Um, there's kind of some space for a song to find its place that way. So when you write a song, is it that you don't necessarily imagine who's singing it at that point? It depends on the song, and it depends on the writer. I mean, Dan and I write most of the songs, and they usually do start out alone and with the voices that end up singing them. So so there is that kind of thread. But um, there's other songs, like Raindrops is a song Dan and I wrote together that was just started with his guitar part playing over and over and me singing in the next room to his guitar part, not really thinking about who would end up singing that, but just thinking, oh, wow, this fits right into what he's playing in the next room. And I, I imagined that as being more of a duet, but it ended up being more of a song that I just sang. Raindrops on the rooftop, he said. Just stop and listen Constant as the earthquakes As the day breaks Stop and listen I think I was just coming up with a progression in finger-picking and uh, much to my delight, Bonnie was writing lyrics to it and it just sort of worked out and I, th I th it's worked out like that a few times. Um, <laughs> Well, there's this, like, non-verbal communication between you guys. <laughs> a lot of that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's true. But the writing is really democratic, right? It's not just the two of you or, or just you. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we'll sit around during rehearsal or, or just writing, you know, as a group. And, and we'll um, start throwing songs at the wall and seeing what sticks, you know, no matter who wrote it. And everybody has a good sense of, you know, what would fit best with the band. And, you know, on this particular record, Dan Rose wrote uh, When I Fall. And it was pretty apparent that it was a strong song. And, you know, it was kind of unanimous that perhaps I would sing it. A light beyond the dark A love that is unbound Daniel Rodriguez and Bonnie Payne of Netherland folk band Elephant Revival. 
Coming up, a storyline Payne's been working on lyrically for years. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to my conversation from last year with two members of the Netherland folk band Elephant Revival, Bonnie Payne and Daniel Rodriguez. They're back at Red Rocks later this month. We spoke last year about their latest album, Pedals. I asked Bonnie about her cello. This is the first time she put it on an Elephant Revival record. That was exciting and um the producer chose we gave him an array of songs and some of the songs that he chose involved me playing the cello which was fun to have an actual melodic instrument to convey the song on instead of a washboard or a drum to actually have something that you could emphasize the notes with because Um, washboard and drum that's what you're accustomed to yeah that and musical saw Mm -hmm. so the cello is like a whole different voice to play with and um the first song on the album is called Hello You Who, and that's that and um, For the Shore are both part of that story that I was telling you about. You can kind of feel some similarities in them, I think. That serial story that you're telling. <laughs> what What is that story? Well, it's a long story, so <laughs> I could tell you a tiny piece of it. Give me, yes, the Cliff Notes version. Um, so the first song on the album is um, When Two People Meet um, by the Sea. They have a child, and that child's story is in the very first album that we recorded called Kurik, that or the song is called Kurik, where the child gets uh, taken out to sea. And then there's a song in the middle of this new album uh, in Petals called Further Shore, and that's when the child grows up and tells of his adventures of what happened while he was out there. I've seen the furthest of the shore, I've felt the deepest of the sea, carried away that fateful day, my mother calling after me, heard my mother calling after me. It sounds like some of the songs on this album really have been percolating for a long time. Is that true? Like a decade in some cases. That is true, yeah, yeah. some of them, and some of them were brand new, too. How do you make note of songs or ideas that come to you? For me, there's files everywhere. There's files on my iPhone. There's uh, many notebooks that I may forget where they are. I forget of of songs quite a bit and need to be reminded of them. I save bits of his songs sometimes because I'm like, oh, you're going to forget that, and that is beautiful. Yeah, and sometimes Bonnie (laughs) will will borrow my phone if she doesn't have hers so that she can call her, her voicemail and leave one of her songs that she's writing on my voicemail. Or her voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I understand that one other ritual you have besides voicemails is you wear a special pair of gloves, Bonnie. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, only when I play washboard, actually. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, that could be a callous making instrument. Is that why? Um, I sew the finger picks on with dental floss so they don't fly off. Um, there's banjo picks on those gloves. And so that helps amplify um, the tapping on the washboard. Drifting round Cold river bound 
How did you come up with that clever glove concept? Um, well, my dad uh, had the idea to put the banjo picks on my fingers. Your dad? Um, mm-hmm. And then I played with just finger picks for a year or so. And then his mother passed away, and I, my grandmother, and I inherited a box of antique driving gloves. And my fingers were getting pretty torn up, and I was losing banjo picks. And so uh, we decided to try sewing the picks onto a pair of those gloves, which ended up working out. And then I, you know, I wear through them every nine months, and I had this supply of beautiful antique leather gloves that I knew what to do with all of a sudden. So. They're heirloom gloves. They mm-hmm, very pretty. Cool. The washboard <laughs> uh, are, are heirloom too. I'm, well, no, they're not heirloom, but you can only find the type that she likes at uh, antique stores. <laughs> Did you guys imagine back in 06 that you'd still be playing together these many years later? Yeah, it was pretty clear for me. <laughs> I didn't know, but I, I knew that we would be friends for most likely life, but I didn't know that we'd still be traveling the country together. This notion of sticking together and cohesion, uh, this relates actually to the title of the band, Elephant Revival. Mm -hmm. Who wants to tell that story? Um, Dan, point it at Bonnie. You've been volunteered. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, um, yeah, Dango Rose, our bass player, was busking in front of the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago, and there were two elephants that had lived together for a long time who got separated. One was bought by the Salt Lake City Zoo, and they both passed away within a relatively close time of each other, and some speculate that it was from heartbreak because they're tribal creatures. They form really strong bonds when they live together, and to be alone or, you know, separated and alone can be really hard on them. So they both died separated from each other in, in short order. You know, within a week or so of being separated. Yeah, and we were all spread out all over the country at the time. I was in Oklahoma, Dan was in Connecticut. And so Dango saw that as kind of a sign to leave Chicago and sent us a message to come together as what felt like a tribe. You know, he was looking for his his tribe mates or whatever, and um, he sent me a text message that said, elephant revival concept, question mark, and a list of, you know, the stage stop, Pearl Street Pub, like all these little venues in Colorado mostly and in Oklahoma where I was as a potential small tour. And I just said, sure. (laughs) And Elephant Revival was born. Uh, Let's go out with one more song, On and On. And I noticed that about two minutes into this song, it morphs into this kind of chant. Mm -hmm. On and on and on and on. And it changed from me from words to just pure sound. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Lyrically, you know, as the person who wrote it, um, I just couldn't be more happier with how it came out. And yeah, I think it's good uh, for chorus, you know, for people to get entranced and if it's a particular word or a particular sound to just let that trance take over. And uh, I think that happens on this song for a little bit. Bonnie Dan, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having us. Truth can die ever so young Reborn upon the beds Of the dying tongue So many have sworn For all truths to be said And night it falls upon desire Where our forgotten dreams can be seen And in our eternal flames and fire Our bodies wax and wane And it goes on and on And on and on it goes on and on, and on.
Netherlands folk band Elephant Revival from last year. Their latest album is called Petals. They play Red Rocks May 21st. That's our show for today. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.